study is the Gospel of John. We're edging in on it as we look at the prologue. The prologue, again, is a word before. And so as John begins his Gospel, his good news in regard to Jesus the Christ, and that's his subject, uh, as he proves him to be the Son of God, he lays forth a few words in verse 1 through 18 of chapter 1. Uh, in regard to some preliminaries to studying the Gospel of John. We've already went through A, B, C, D, E, and we're down to letter F. And I think I've already given you this outline before, haven't I? Okay, so next week I'll not write it again. I'll just start with where we stop here. And so this morning... Uh, we'll be looking at another facet, another aspect of this logos, this word. Uh, you remember John started with the logos, the word. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. By him all things were made. And without him was not anything made that is made. And he, and in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shined in darkness, and darkness comprehended it not, or apprehended it not, whichever one word you like best. There was a man sent from John whose name was uh, well, he goes ahead talking about John the Baptist in verse uh, 6, 7, and 8. Verse 8 concludes about John. He was not that light that's being discussed, but he was to bear witness of that light. And verse 9, that was the true light which lighteth every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of flesh and blood, uh, but of the will, and not of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, that's far I'll read down through there to get us into our study but in verse 14 he's declared to be uh, the, in, the uh, incarnate in other words this word this logos became flesh and here's the way John says it and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth now the word there in the text, uh, that statement, the word became flesh. Let's notice that for a minute. He expressed himself in a human personality that was visible, audible, and tangible. And so Jesus came down as the word, the logos from heaven, 
humbled himself to come down here and to express himself in a human personality uh, that was visible to all men to see, still is, because of the record, because of the historical documentation. Uh, so he uh, was not only visible, but audible and tangible. He partook of flesh and blood with its limitations, just like we have, of space and time. And with its physical <coughs> handicaps of fatigue, hunger, and susceptibility to suffering, he came as a human. He suffered as a human. He was hungry. He suffered these things that men suffer and have limitations in. Uh, so that he could become, he could belong to humanity as well as to God. Now in Hebrews uh, uh, 7, verse 14 and 15, uh, Paul presents the fact that he is the one who is the willer of our salvation. You know what a will is. Uh, and we're beneficiaries of that will. And that will is not in force until after men are dead. And that will be Paul's statement there in that text. In Hebrews 7, verse 13 and 14. Uh, but he uh, belongs to the human family as well as God. Because uh, he presents him there not only as the one who willed it, but as the mediator. Now, we all understand what a mediator does. A mediator is between two parties that are opposed to one another. A mediator is one who represents both parties that are at odds with one another. And we put that illustration on the board in a picture that you can see and understand maybe a little clearer as we present God in this analogy as this large circle. And here we are, the small circle. We're united to God until sin comes into our life. And when it does, we find ourselves separated because of sin. We find ourselves out here because sin has separated. Uh, and here we are out here, separated from God. A mediator is one who goes between God and man in this situation. He, he, he represents both of them because he is both of them. That's why he had to become a man. Uh, Hebrews uh, 2 verse 9 the writer says that our salvation came by a man. He says, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, yet crowned with glory and honor that by the grace of God Almighty he should taste death for every man. And so he was the mediator, the one that brought us back to God. And there's that large circle representing God again. And here we are out here that was separated because of sin, but there was a cross set up on a hill called Calvary. And the blood that was shed on that cross has cleansed us in Colossians 1, or Ephesians 1. Verse 13, I think it is. Somebody check that out for me. It declares that we are made nigh unto God by the blood of His Son. Is that what it says? Is that the verse?
No, that's not it. No, that's not it. Not it. I'm looking. It's not one for thir thirteen. What's well, in the Bible? Ephesians two thirteen. But we're uh, two thirteen maybe. Yep. Is that it? Yep. Okay. So that's what a mediator does. He stands between uh, two opposing parties, God and us. Sin was the separator. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Isaiah told Israel, said, uh, God is not uh, uh, deaf that he cannot hear, and neither is his arm short that he cannot save. But the problem is your sins and your iniquities have separated between you and God so that he will not hear you. He does not hear men in their blatant rebellion uh, uh, against them. Yet all men cry out to him, don't they? You come upon an accident on the highway and you find an accident there. You find out later that those people were drunken and rebellious. They had no use for God, for his church, uh, for his salvation, for his word or nothing. Had no love for him. They just liked his food and his life and water and all the things that God provides. They like that. They like the beauty of the mountains and all of that. They just don't like God the creator. And so here you come up on them. And who are they appealing to? Oh God, why did you let this happen? Oh, do something. Breathe. Give us life. And they're praying desperately to God. But God does not hear a sinner's prayer. Now here's a sinner, when, like in Cornelius' case, and I got myself into this, I'm going to have to get myself out. He listens to a sinner like he did to Cornelius. Because Cornelius, being a sinner and lost, and needing to be baptized for the remission of his sins, he was seeking after God. The same with the Ethiopian eunuch. And God hears those prayers, but he, we, we were separated because of our blatant rebellion. We were, we're the ones that walked out here. And Hebrews uh, 7 verse 13 and 14 Jesus is the mediator that brought us uh, into union with God by the way of his cross. Well that was a long way of getting around to saying that but that's the case nevertheless. And so uh, uh, so he came to this earth to associate uh, to, because he had to be human and he also had to be God. He had to represent both parties in this uh, being a mediator. And uh, we're the beneficiaries of that will that he made. All right, and in verse uh, 14, it not only says the word became flesh, it says, and he dwelt among us. The word dwelt there really means to pitch tent. Now tent is a temporary, temporary thing, isn't it? This word is found in the Old Testament because it refers to the times when they, the Israelites pitched the tent of God as they moved in the wilderness. His tabernacle. And so it means to pitch tent. So he dwelt 
he pitched ten among us. He camped among us, in other words. And although his stay was very temporary, it was not illusionary. Look at 1 John 1, verse 1. And one of you men with a loud voice, please read it for me so everybody can hear it. If you mumble it, I'm going to take, by my authority, I'm going to throw this at you. Is it verse 1? One, 1, verse 1. It says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. You know why John went into that extreme uh, definition of the association they had with the Lord? Is because at that time there were these uh, ascetic uh, uh, preachers who were going about saying that Jesus was illusionary, that he really wasn't human, because after all, the Jews thought that God could not suffer death, so he they couldn't uh, to to get around that they had to make him illusionary, and uh, they had him actually in their preaching they had. God coming down from heaven and taking the body of Jesus the Nazarene hostage until they got to the cross. And when this God had caused all this trouble against him, against Jesus and Nazareth, uh, then at the cross, because God cannot suffer, God cannot die in their opinion, consequently God exited the body and they say that's why Jesus cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And so there was this teaching of illusionary in John's time, in the New Testament times. And John makes it very clear he wasn't illusionary. We saw him, we handled him, he said. Uh, and he goes into quite a, a uh, presentation of the fact that Jesus was very human, very visible, uh, and so he dwelt among us. Uh, it wasn't illusionary. And then and dealing with verse 14, it says, And we beheld his glory. And of course the glory is, uh, some of the synonyms of it is majesty, dignity, and splendor. And we did. We beheld His glory. Anyone who reads the Gospels beheld, holds His glory. You're not shortchanged just because you live 2,000 years after the fact. You have a record, a historical document that God put in writing. Man didn't do this, and man didn't screw it up. Else God is not all-powerful. But because God is all-powerful, His sovereignty wouldn't allow man to screw it up in any way. So forget that idea. Don't even, don't even uh, listen to those kind of ideas. We have the Word of God with us today. If we don't, we don't have the love of God. We don't have the concern of God. And He's been feeding us for nothing. He's been seeing that we have life every day for nothing. Now I want you to think about that. Merle. If I 
I may real quick. There's a, I've got a couple notes in my Bible in the margin, and I'm sure they're from last time you taught this, but on verse 13, 14, and 15 in John, I've got wrote, it's not subject to our senses. So it's, in other words, what you're saying, it, it, this stuff happened. It's a matter of fact, it's recorded. And then in 1 John 1, I've got, again, a note probably from you, it says, it's not subjective. In yeah. Other words, it's, no, it is subjective. I, I'm sorry, objective. Subjective is based Object. on our feelings. Yeah. <clears throat> it's not illusionary, in other words. Yeah. So he dwelt among us, it says in that verse, and that means to pitch tents, and we beheld his glory, uh, and here is the effect of revelation, or revelatory. He revealed himself to us. He laid himself bare and showed himself openly as he expressed the Father to the world. Verse 18 will tell us. But here it says he beheld, or some translation says observed. We beheld, we observed. And the verb contains the root of the word theater. I found that pretty interesting. And it connotes more than a casual glance. It involves a careful scrutiny of what is before one in order to understand uh, its significance. And so Jesus just didn't appear and that's it and gone. He was here long enough to establish every aspect of his divinity uh, over all things and to prove himself to be the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and the one who was announced in many ways through Old Testament prophecy. That was to the shame of those Jews because they read the Old Testament. Uh, that's all they had. They didn't have the New Testament, but they read the Septuagint scriptures in the Old Testament. That's uh, Genesis through Malachi. And they read that continuously in the synagogue. And if you was a Jew, you heard it time and time again. They should have known that he came to them, that he was the Messiah that was promised by God, the one that was going to build a kingdom of righteousness and peace and equity and justice for all. And it'd be an eternal kingdom. They should have known that, yet they crucified him. And that's why John says he came unto his own. And what did his own do? We've seen that last week. The Jews, they were his own. They were his people. He was a Jew. He was of the seed of David. <clears throat> he came unto his own, and his own received him not. But to as many as did receive him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Even to them that believe on his name. Where's that power to become a son of God? Believing. If you believe, what are you going to do? What's belief going to lead you to? Uh, there's a water grave up here It's going to lead you to, isn't it? There's no escaping that, is there? The Baptists and some of the other denominations that teach that baptism is not important don't have a clue what they're talking about. And they certainly are not biblical in any of their doctrines. And so... Uh, this word beheld or observed, the root of that word is theater, and it connotes 
more than a casual glance. It involves a careful scrutiny of what is before one. And so we have recorded for us, uh, for the mind's observation, we have the picture of a complete, concise uh, 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 presentation. It, it, it's just not a glance here and a little glance there. You fill in the blanks. No, 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 no. He proved himself completely, totally, thoroughly. That's the nature of God's love, isn't it? As he proved himself in the creation by feeding you all this time, most of us are all kind of overweight. Yeah, he's taking care of us pretty good, hasn't he? <clears throat> well, that's going to change because America's changing. They want so bad to get away from God. And he's going to let them walk out there and they're going to find out they don't want that. Look at the other nations that already have. Look at Africa, India, China. Look at some of these uh, domatic uh, governments that hold domain over man. Uh, restrict them of the freedoms of life and, and uh, property and things. <laughs> yeah, we're going to realize that we need God bad. So far, all we've wanted from him is the good things. Yeah, old man, keep sending the steaks. We like your steaks. We like the sunshine. We like the beauty of your creation. And so, bless us with traveling around the country. But you, we ain't got time for you. I'm on a vacation. I ain't got time to stop on Sunday and worship you. Who do you think you are? Just keep sending the good things. And that's our ugly attitude. It's ugly, isn't it? When you look at it. There's a lot that goes along with that. <coughs> Did you ever stop to think how precious you are in the sight of God? Now this don't have a whole lot to do with John here, but I want to go into it. I talked about our ugly attitude and how God is gracious toward us, sees to our needs and everything. But how about the... Uh, what was I talking about? How God looks upon us. How God looks upon... How, how He looks upon us. How precious you are. Uh, how, there it is. How precious you are. You can't study the Bible without seeing the preciousness of every soul that's born into this world. Now, because there's so many of us, there's... Well, right now, I think there's seven or eight billion of us on the earth. And we get lost in the numbers. We think, well... It's just a, kind of a thing that happened. No, it wasn't. God breathes breath of life into every soul that is on this earth. Is he one? Is he the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow? What do you say to Jeremiah? Jeremiah, the first chapter in about, I don't know, verse 12. He said, I knew thee, the night thou was conceived in thy mother's womb. He had a purpose for Jeremiah. That's why Jeremiah had captured the breath of life God gave him. You and I are precious. God knows every one of us. In fact, you existed before you existed. Read Revelation 4, verse 11. 
the host of heaven praises God for his glory and dominion and for his creation. And he says, for your glory, all things were, and they were created. Now, your translation is not going to read that way because uh, the translators in the King James translation didn't figure you was intelligent enough to accept that. And so they just wrote in there that uh, uh, you are and you were created. But the Greek goes, the Hebrew goes deeper than that in the Greek. It says they, you were and you were created. So he existed before he existed. God set up the cross before the cross was ever set up on the earth. 2 Timothy 1 9, uh, Ephesians 1 verse uh, uh, 4. He created his son a long time before he ever made the earth, before you was ever born, before humanity ever appeared on this earth, before the earth even appeared. Does God know what he's done? I think so. Don't you? He's all powerful. And so don't ever slight God by thinking that he left us a word that we can't, just got bits and pieces. We have a total view of Christ. He presented himself before man 2,000 years ago, and we still have that presentation before men in the Gospels, in the Word. And in the explanation of the Word that was given by the apostles as they were directed to write what they did by the Holy Spirit, miraculously. All right, uh, now, turn over to 2 Peter 1, verse 16, and one of you men read that. 2 Peter 1, 16. Because Peter's going to tell us that these things are not hallucinatory or imaginary. They were eyewitnesses. Now, John, we've already seen in John 1, verse, 1 John 1, verse 1, that John said, we beheld him, we handled him, uh, that which was the word of life. He was not hallucinatory. And here, John, go ahead and read what Peter says. But well, we did not follow the cunning, uh, cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the com coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. All right, they were eyewitnesses. He wasn't illusionary. That's the point. And so the incarnate Logos uh, was uh, studied under all possible conditions, favorable as well as unfavorable. All of the information that human investigation could produce was made available by his willingness to be questioned and observed. He's a lot different than what you see in the President of the United States today, Mr. What his name is? Biden. Because he don't like interviews. He don't like to present himself. He don't want you knowing what his, what his plans are. He works for you. He pleaded for your vote, but now you ain't nothing. He don't want to... Ah, get off of that. No wonder them girls call me white mouth. They did. You're back there laughing, but there was two girls. I won't mention their name again, but they both red-headed. <laughs> All right, then we come to verse 16 through 18, and here we have the word revealing. 
It says, And his fullness have we all received, and grace upon grace upon grace upon grace in exchange for more grace. That's what that verse says. Your translation probably reads, uh, We've received, uh, we've all received grace upon grace. Uh, as one blessing is used, a fresh one is substituted to take its place. That's the idea. Grace upon grace. Uh, consequently, the knowledge of Christ never becomes purely historic in the sense that one contact, limited to one event, is all there is to it. Now, I want to comment a little bit further on that because a lot of people don't see anything in Jesus except... Yeah, I heard that he come to this world. Yeah, I heard about him. And they don't look any deeper. They don't look any deeper. What if you've done that with your wife or your husband? Well, I met him and I married him. I married her. I don't need to look anymore. No, you look deeply into one another. You look deeply into the message that's left about this Christ, this Messiah that is so profound as he represented God the man that you and I can study the scriptures for a thousand years and not fathom the full depths of it. We can fathom what God wanted to reveal to us. Yeah, he made that clear. But you will never be able to fathom the depths of God's love and his creative power and any aspect about God. You can only fathom what he's revealed to you. That's why Deuteronomy 29, 29, God, uh, Moses made it very clear to them people. They were like us, you know. Oh, where did God come from? What about this? What about that? And Moses said, you're looking in the wrong place. He said, the secret things belong unto God. There are some things that belong unto God. You know that, though, don't you? You're not an Einstein. You'll live this whole life with a lot of wonderment about things that you'll never resolve. Because there's no profit for you in it, or God would have revealed it. And so Moses said, the secret things belong to God. But the things that are revealed, right here in this black book, are revealed. That you and I can learn them and live by them. But here we have grace upon grace, and we live a life that God sends us one blessing right after another. You ever sit around and pout when you're being blessed because you're so dumb you couldn't see it? <laughs> well, we've all been there, haven't we? We've all been there. And one day the light goes on. Ding! And you realize how blessed you really are. And when it comes to the Christian, how blessed is he? We'll go read Romans, the 8th chapter, verse 31 through 39, and ponder that a little bit. It starts out with a question. Since God is for us, who or what could be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all? In view of that, how shall he not give us all freely all things? Who's going to indict us? God justified us. Who's going to condemn us? Uh, Christ died for the condemned. And is in heaven making intercession for us. And he goes on and he finally ends with a long list of things that we might think could uh, deprive us of our uh, eternal reward. 
He says, neither death nor life nor principality nor powers nor things present nor things come nor height nor death nor angels nor or anything. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God that's found in Christ Jesus. And so we have blessing upon blessing, and that's what that verse says. Uh, of his fullness have we all received, and grace upon grace, or in exchange for grace. So the, the growing uh, uh, realization of Christ in his contacts with men is uh, convincing evidence of his uh, illimitless fullness. It's presented. Men just don't want to read about it. They're too busy with golfing and hunting and what well, you just name it. It amazes me how stupid we really are. The final and climactic statement of the prologue here, verse 1 through, 18, uh, through verse 18. In verse 18 it says, No man has seen deity at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. So he starts out with that statement, No man has seen deity at any time. The unveiled essence of deity has never been given to mortal sight at all. You and I couldn't live through it. We don't have the capability to live through seeing the reality of God in all of its depths and propensities. We don't. That's why no man sees God and lives. That's why God turned his back on Moses and said, you just see my backside. Moses couldn't handle it. And it was such of a brilliant nature that when he come off the mountain, he glowed like maybe a piece of, uh, maybe a piece of that stuff out there in Hanford. Uranium. What is it? Uranium. Ura well, whatever. I've seen it as green anyway. It's green stuff glowing in the 20 foot of water. Now there's where you want a safety belt. You don't want to walk around the pool a 20 foot and look down in there at that green stuff because, well. All right, so uh, the unveiled essence of deity has never been given to mortal sight. The real character of God can only be seen in the Son of God, who is the full expression of the Father's life and of his love. Now, he says the only begotten. We're going to have to deal with that phrase. Uh, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth, he has declared him. The only begotten does not imply physical generation, nor does it imply a beginning. But it transcends the idea of creation altogether. And it speaks of one of a kind, specifically divine. That's what it speaks of. The only begotten, one of a kind. Now, the denominational world's out there trying to use these kind of passages to show, see, Jesus was created and, and uh, he was begotten. Uh, and we speak of it in terms of creation. It had nothing to do with creation. It has to do with his royalty, his divinity. 
He's the only begotten. He's one of a kind. And that's why he can represent God and uh, unto man. So he's one of a kind, deity. And so the expression there in that verse, in the bosom of the Father, it means perfect understanding and love. It declares that Jesus possessed the knowledge of his character, design, and nature, which no other one possesses, and which renders him qualified above all others to make him known. That was his mission. That was his job. Now the word declared there, that was his job to declare, to make a declaration. Uh, full and clear. Declared implies that the interpretation of God given by the Son is complete and final as far as the needs of man are concerned. Note them two words, complete and final. We don't need anything else revealed to us. We have the understanding God wants us to have of his love, of his plan, of our salvation. We have it. And so, uh, uh, declared, yeah, Jesus declared all that we need. He declared the interpretation of God given by the Son is complete and final as far as the needs of man are concerned. Now, in the conclusion to this uh, uh, prologue, uh, we've got to go back and pick up some scriptures that talked about John the Baptist. In these 18 verses, there's, uh, there's only four verses that speaks outside of the Logos. And that speaks of John the Baptist. Verse 6 through 8 and verse 15. And there's three points that are stressed in those verses. John the Baptist's human uh, personality, his capability as a witness, and his subordinate really, uh, uh, relation to the Logos. Now, Let's read verse uh, 6 through 8 as it talks about John the Baptist in this context of presenting uh, Jesus as the Logos. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came as a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light but was sent to bear witness of that light. Now look at verse 15. And it uh, is the last verse in this prologue that speaks of John the Baptist. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. All right, those are the only... Uh, uh, the only four verses that speaks of John the Baptist there in that prologue. And so, again, it speaks of his human personality, his capacity as a witness. He was sent by God according to prophecy and uh, his subordinate relation to the Logos. 
He wasn't that light, but he was sent to bear witness. He was a subordinate to that light. Now, coupled in verse 15 with verse 17, the passage shows that in the revelation of God through Jesus Christ, there is a new beginning greater than the law and the prophets. A new beginning. How about John 1.17 here? The law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. You see that but in there? The law, that thing that condemned, that thing God sent as a condemner, because Revelation, or Romans 3, verse 7 and verse 9 says that no man was ever saved by law. Verse 20 says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. That means by doing the law. There shall no flesh, there wasn't one that was justified by law in his sight. And the reason of it is stated in the last of that verse, verse 20. Revelation, Romans 3, verse 20. What was it? No flesh should be justified in his sight, for by the law is what? The knowledge of sin. Why did God send the law? To condemn the world and show it that it needed God's grace and mercy and salvation. you got to see that you need something before you get it, don't you? Uh, Conrad, uh, he works that big heavy equipment out there. And he don't go buy something until it's evident to him that he needs it because it's expensive. <laughs> That's the nature of the, of the beast, isn't it? And so... We didn't see a need for salvation and couldn't appreciate it until we saw a deliverance by God from such a captivity of sin and death. You ever thought about that? There's uh, the fact that uh, this earth is seen, according to the Bible's uh, history, is seen about six thousand years of God's grace. If it weren't for that, we would have already been destroyed. Our salvation has always come by one. Remember Noah? He's the only link to our uh, redemption. He's the only one that found favor in God's eyes. Yet he was just a man, like all of us, but he'd want to believe God. God destroyed everybody else. Millions of people drowned him. Now think about that a little bit. Who drowned Millions. Was there little children there? Yeah. Was there old people there? Yeah, like me, crippled and couldn't fight for survival on top. And all those people had to migrate as the water came up and had to make it to the top of the highest peaks to breathe air. And no doubt mothers in desperation held their babies up above them when they was already underwater and finally died and then their babies died. God showed his wrath on humanity. He destroyed this whole world, man and the earth. You ought to read Emmanuel Velikovsky sometime in his book that he wrote a uh, hundred years ago 
uh, earth in upheavals. And he'll tell you about mammoth slabs of earth that were just chaotically blown apart and, ca and cast back down, upside down and backwards and forwards. And that's why we find coal strata running every which way and another. And in the depths of the earth we found human artifacts of steel carvings and things made by man that's buried thousands of feet in the ground in coal. And so God showed his wrath not only on man but on this earth. So only one third of the earth is inhabitable by man because the rest of it is rocks and uh, cliffs and uh, deserts and things that cannot produce life, cannot maintain life. But we see written on the map of the, of the globe, we see the hand of God's wrath because of sin. Now do you think we'd be here if we didn't have God's grace? So we're recipients of God's grace upon grace upon grace. And the ultimate of that grace is salvation, <coughs> eternal salvation. There'll be a lot of men who spent a lifetime receiving in some propensity, some, some, uh, 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 some things, the grace of God. Those street people, they, they eat mistakes sometimes when we give them some money <laughs> one of their checks, weekly checks yeah. <laughs> he lives on the street they got nice tents don't they yeah Bro, what was the name of that book Emmanuel Velikovsky he wrote uh, several books Earth and Upheaval <laughs> that's the one you want and he wrote one called Ages and Chaos I can't think of the other ones he wrote but that man was a uh, ostracized as it were from the scientific uh, endeavor because what he wrote flew in the face of evolution when evolution was gaining momentum boy and it, oh yeah we evolved uh, and he wrote his book Earth in Upheavals and it contradicted everything that uh, he said and incidentally you don't know it probably but you can find out in the record of history. Did you know that uh, uh, Darwin, just a few years after he published his theory of evolution, he renounced it himself? Did you know that? Most people don't know that. They're not going to teach you that in school. But it's a fact. And, of course, uh, Emmanuel Velikovsky will tell you about that in his book. And uh, so will Henry M. Morrison, who wrote uh, The Genesis Flood. Oh, boy, it's worth the money to buy that book, too. The Genesis Flood. Now, it gets into evidences, doesn't it? But nevertheless... Uh, Darwin renounced his own theory because it could not jive with later findings after he wrote it. Did you know there's always been a theory of evolution? <coughs> they vary a little bit, but they all basically have a common denominator amongst them. Did you know that Moses went to the schools of the king of the Pharaoh of Egypt? He was thought to be the daughter, or the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And do you know that uh, 
He went to school and was taught evolution. There have been many theories of evolution. And evolution is correct. But not correct to the extent that Darwin and the rest of them give it. Because they have uh, a evolution between over the species lines. There is an evol evolution within species. For example, you take a big dog, you breed him down and make a little one. You take a little dog, breed him up, and make him a big one. Uh, you do different things with these animals. There's an evolutionary process in that. But it's always within the particular species. But Darwin, he presented a, an outrageous presentation of how that we come from amoeba in the sea, uh, swung on a tree, and that's me. What an idea. We started out amoeba, we become a dog, and then a, an alligator, and a horse, and I don't know what all. We crossed all those species. Ridiculous. consideration of who he is. He starts his ministry. And here is, right here, I've got them all on the board. If you didn't get a copy of them last week, this would be the last time I'll put it up there. Uh, uh, the period of consideration. A period when Jesus was put forth to be considered as to who he claimed to be, the Son of God. Thank you. Thank you.